Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much indeed for tuning in. This podcast is going to be a little different, mainly focusing on your questions, because on Monday night, I'm streaming the show live from the King's Place website, as I'm sure you all know by now, at seven o'clock. Get your tickets if you haven't yet. Some of the things we'll be discussing the government's reset, so-called, with special reference to Pretty Patel, the Pritster, as Boris Johnson calls her. I think there's so much just in the use of that name that we need to explore tomorrow night. Uh, There's, oh, blimey, there's Brexit stuff looming. There's Scotland. And want to look at uh, Keir Starmer as well and his leadership, not least in relation to the Corbyn saga. Also, there will have been, by 7 o'clock tomorrow night, the lockdown latest announcements, and they too have a very deep political dimension. This focus on Christmas is so interesting. Anyway, they will be some of the themes tomorrow night, plus your unreliable, my unreliable predictions at the beginning. I'm going to make you, or get you, or ask you politely to make a prediction. I think I know what it's going to be, but it's all so fast moving in politics it could change. And there will be questions live on the night. So please, please sign up, join in, get a glass of wine, cup of coffee, and we will have some fun tomorrow. In the meantime, this gives me the space, because obviously I want to save my reflections for the live show, to get through a few more of your questions on today's podcast. No doubt we will, in doing so, reflect on some of the themes that will be part of the King's Place stream on Monday night at seven, but that will be, oh God, in so much depth, we have so much time to breathe. Talking of which, Uh, Noah Keat has asked a question, which is one of my great kind of obsessive themes. He says, are political commentators too quick to make judgments on politicians and policy areas? With regard to politicians, many individuals had written off Boris Johnson's future over the summer. Now with a COVID vaccine around the corner and perception of a fresh start in inverted commas, His administration and political future is viewed more positively. Well, in some quarters and in some commentators, you may be right about that. So is it wise for commentators so quickly to rush to judgment? This could also apply to Rishi Sunak, who, despite being currently popular, may face challenges. Don't put may, Noah, will face challenges. This is a good question because my answer is emphatically yes. It's one of the reasons why I do the podcast is my frustration with media orthodoxy that they leap almost collectively to a set of assumptions about politicians, about where they are at any given moment. I've said it before, but it's one of my great themes that it was just accepted in a way that David Cameron and George Osborne were modernizers in inverted commas. It was treated almost as a political fact that they were centrists in inverted commas. And yet when you look back, say, at their economic policy, you may agree or disagree with it, it was to the right of Margaret Thatcher, an economic policy incidentally criticised by Barack Obama in his memoir. And so were they centrist or moderniser? But you read the columns and indeed BBC reports at the time, and it was kind of treated as fact. 
By the way, the early days of the coalition were hailed as a great new way of working, parties working together. Look at the maturity of Cameron and Clegg as they dance together. But Clegg at the time when the commentators were saying this was dancing towards his doom. He had already accepted, for example, the tripling of tuition fees when he was being hailed as someone to follow as a new way of doing politics. So my assumption, like Noah's, I think, is to assume that the media orthodoxy at any given time is wrong or hasn't taken the full picture into account. Politics is deep, which is why it's so interesting. And my frustration, and I suspect some of you, else you wouldn't be listening to this, is the surface of politics sure has a kind of drama in itself, but delve deeper and you get into much more drama and significance and get closer to the essence. And that applies now as well in different ways, but I'll be reflecting on some of that at uh, King's Place. I'm very suspicious of the word reset or relaunch, not just with Johnson, but when it's been applied in the past. More seven o'clock on Monday night. Stephen Fish has emailed to say, oh, I always enjoy listening to your show, usually whilst making a HelloFresh lunch. The length of your talk is perfect for the time it takes to prepare lunch, usually 30 to 35 minutes. Quite a lot of time, Stephen, to prepare a lunch. I hope it better be good. Do you think there was anything in the box which Dominic Cummings was carrying out of Downing Street when he left for the last time? <laughs> yeah, I, I've I bet a lot of us have wondered whether there was much in that box. It was quite a small box as well. Is that all his documentation? All that time he was there running the country? It could all be carried out in a little box? Yeah, I, I wonder too. The uh, The symbolism was what it was all about. And Cummings, for all his apparent focus on science and data and all the rest of it, loved political theatre, you could just tell else he wouldn't have left in such a visible way. By the way, measuring the significance of his departure is much more difficult, this reset, so-called, and yet the pattern of politics in number 10 seems to have quite a lot of familiar rhythms to it. So anyway, you're right, Stephen. Lee has a question. As part of his reset, Boris, see, we're all into the reset. It's interesting how when a term is out there, we all kind of view things through that framing, even if sceptically. As part of his reset, uh, Lee asks, Boris Johnson has let it be known to MPs that devolution, in his view, was New Labour's biggest mistake. Following these remarks, what percentage chance do you give to the survival of the Union of Scotland, England, Northern Ireland and Wales post-Brexit? And to what extent do you think this weighs on Johnson's shoulders? And Lee adds that he walks his two dogs in the morning while listening to this podcast. What a relaxing image that is, Lee. Well, Clearly, the UK is under threat at the moment, and Scotland being the most vivid example, obviously, with polls suggesting independence is much more popular. Though I would watch Ireland and Northern Ireland as well post-Brexit. There's going to be a very thin deal at best. No deal would be a disaster in relation to the whole Irish question, which isn't really answered even by a thin deal. My sense with Scotland is that Whatever happens in the elections in May, 
Johnson and the Johnson government will not grant a referendum because they are terrified they would lose it. And that itself, of course, will fuel the whole question even further. But Johnson, from what I hear in Scotland, is a big issue fueling independence. Thomas Bucknell, oh, Tom Bucknell, right, saying, uh, Hi, Steve, love the podcast. Thank you very much, Tom. That's what Radio 1 DJs say, don't they, when they get nice messages. Oh, thank you, Tom. Apparently, Boris Johnson wants 100% of the British fishing waters back. But even if he got them back, I've heard there wouldn't be enough British fishing vessels to do the job. Wouldn't it be funny if the government invited in French fishing vessels to fish and have Polish workers working in the docks? What would the Brexiteers do then? I think, Tom, you evoke one of many surreal scenes that are going to follow this uh, Brexit period. Follow, it will be a continuation, really, of the drama. I'm told as well that they need the European market. There'll be far too many fish around. There'll be a surplus of fish without the European market being readily available to British fisher people. So the whole fish thing is silly. 0.0 something percent of the British economy. It's emotive. It's going to be um, a strange, strange, surreal scenario, one after another, I think, post-January the 1st. You've highlighted one. I sense in the end it won't be a no deal because of the fish. That in itself would be silly, but let's see. Nathan Baroda writes, I really enjoyed this week's podcast. Thank you very much, Nathan. I wonder if you agreed, this is quite interesting actually, the extent to which this was a vote leave government has been overplayed. This is not to understate the influence of Cunnings personally when he was there, rather that many of the other key figures of the organisation didn't enter Downing Street alongside Cummings. Some of the true vote leavers weren't in the government. Matthew Elliott, who was uh, the vote leave CEO and respectable face to the Tufton Street manager Victoria Woodcock, its head of operations, and Paul Stevenson, its director of comms. So it strikes me that beyond old Kano, Lee Kane, as Vote Leave head of broadcast, it was simply the coming show rather than the one that was Vote Leave at its core. Well, not the whole Vote Leave crowd got in, Nathan, I agree, but to a wholly distorting extent, commitment to Brexit has defined Johnson's administration to some extent behind the scenes because Cummings has had or did have such power over who became special advisors to ministers and quite uniquely it's obviously going to change now he's gone the special advisors were accountable to him so a commitment to Brexit even if they weren't right at the top of vote leave was absolutely pivotal and then if you look at the cabinet only a few kind of tame Remainers got in there and some of the Brexiteer cabinet ministers were not appointed on the basis of merit but because of their commitment to Brexit. Look at the Pritster, Pretty Patel as one example of that. So I think it has been wholly framed this Johnson administration by um, Brexit and to some extent by the vote leave mob as some people refer to them including some quite senior Tories. Richard Frame has emailed to say that he agrees that the reset means nothing. I don't think it means wholly nothing, but I'm coming onto my 
thoughts on the reset at uh, the King's Place stream show. There may well be a tonal change, yeah, exactly, with the departure of the advisors. However, Johnson is still hanging around and is an accident waiting to happen after the 1st of January. Given that nothing has changed and we need to brace ourselves for a pretty rocky ride in the coming weeks and months with a flimsy deal or no deal, how long do you give Johnson when the entire Brexit project goes south? Rick Frame. Well, Rick, I think one way or another, we are underestimating the impact of Brexit from January the 1st without a deal. I did the week in Westminster, presented the week in Westminster on Radio 4 on Saturday. And I can't, we did an item on Brexit, looking at how the negotiation's going. And I said in the script, I almost feel apologetic for covering Brexit because there is so little focus on it. It is weird, even with COVID, that there is so little focus on it. It's partly because Keir Starmer is just not doing anything about it. And in British politics, the media culture depends on a sort of opposition party saying X, Y and Z versus the government and splits and so on. And no one's saying anything in politics about Brexit, apart from the SNP, who um, are at ease with the Remain stance that they took and got a majority in Scotland for. And this is a problem because I think there will be a shock. However, the politics of this is extremely complicated. I think one of the reasons, only one of the reasons, the Conservatives are still doing quite well in the opinion polls is Brexit. People who voted Brexit still feel committed to it on the whole, even though I know polls suggest now a majority think it's a mistake. And they are ready to blame Europe if it goes wrong. You could see that the uh, deified Rishi Sunak gave an interview to the Sunday Times on Sunday. And he said, for example, if there's no deal, that will be Europe's fault. We haven't asked for very much and they wouldn't compromise enough. Well, even if there is a thin deal, you watch it. They're getting ready to blame the European Union and it might work. So although at times you sense Johnson's fragility, I don't think he's in as much trouble as he sometimes seems to be in terms of his longevity in number 10. I don't necessarily mean that means he's going to serve this full term, but I think he'll get through in some shape or form the coming months of intense turbulence. Gillian Oliver uh, raises an interesting question. It's one quite similar to the one we had earlier about commentators instantly forming judgments, which proved to be wrong very quickly, in the sense that she asks about the culture of the sort of inpatient interviewer hurry up we don't have much time approach when presenters are dealing with things she quotes any answers some newsnight interviews she compares it with uh, the brian walden interviews from the 80s and she said he bored the life of me out of me as a child with his program length interviews with leaders but perhaps we need a bit of that yeah i kind of i've always said i've probably said it on this podcast so forgive me for repeating it but um it's the case that the BBC is not biased to the left or right, but it's biased in favour of impatience and rushed interviews and not letting things breathe. And uh, those Walden interviews, they did go on for a long time, but they actually weren't boring. I mean, they did have a problem, the Walden interviews, in that he began with a thesis each week. 
that they had to keep to. And so there could be all kinds of other things going on and other things about an interviewee, which would be really interesting. But he pursued Walden one particular thesis that they had set up in the first 20 minutes of the programme for 40 minutes. But they were compelling. And to allow interviews to breathe means that you get so much more out of them. And actually, they are far more watchable than these short, come on, get on with it, blah, blah, blah. We want you to say certain things. That's why we've booked you. Say them, we'll bollock you for saying them, then we'll move on, which is the sort of kind of culture at the moment. And people say, oh, that's what people want. You know, there's a kind of, but it's rubbish. It's interesting from another genre Michael Parkinson's interviews are always being played you know when some actor dies they play a Parkinson interview and the key thing as he's often said about his interviews they were allowed to breathe he interviewed some people for an hour and it just wouldn't be allowed now and it's this patronizing thing oh people won't be able to concentrate well they can Gareth Jones wonders whether I and others have been too hard on Labour and the Lib Dems for conceding the election in December on the date that Boris Johnson wanted, given that the SNP wanted that date because they were going to do quite well. I still think, Gareth, that they could have been stopped and that ways in which the majority of that House of Commons so opposed to the kind of hard Brexit that Johnson sought, could have been choreographed to exert much, much more power than it did, especially over, in a fixed-term parliament, the election date. But that needed leadership with great guile and perception, and um, that was lacking in both Jeremy Corbyn and Joe Swinson. So I think even without the SNP supporting, and by the way, the SNP came to it, Nicola Sturgeon decided she wanted that December date, absolutely rightly from her perspective. They were going to do well and did well. But others in the SNP weren't so sure about it because they knew what the consequences might be for Brexit. But anyway, it happened. And I think um, Corbyn was placed in a difficult dilemma when you had the Tories, the SNP and the Lib Dems all calling for it. But before that point, everybody should have been kind of led by an effective figure. These dissenters over Johnson's style of leadership and his Brexit into some kind of informal force to prevent what is now unfolding. And they had the numbers and they failed. So there we go. Dennis Baker asks, oh, interested to know whether you'll be updating your audio book on Prime Minister's Reflections on Leadership to include the Johnson chapter, which is in the new paperback version. I've been delaying getting it, expecting the update. Well, I think with these audio books, they go on the, the hardback, Dennis, so I suspect there will not be an update with uh, Johnson. So, can I suggest a dream ticket? You download the Audible version, you know, when you're walking, running, gardening, cooking, and then get the paperback for the Johnson chapter. The Johnson chapter, I'm, 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 only, I'm sort of half joking, but only half. It's a kind of third way solution. The Johnson chapter contextualizes the others, I think, in a curious way. I learned more about the others when I was writing about Johnson, who was so different from all the others. 
Nick Shannon writes, oh, he listens to the podcast Raking Leaves in My Garden. Great exercise physically and mentally. Oh, what a, that, that's what David Frost would call a dream ticket. The interviewer, not the uh, puny Brexit negotiator. That's a nice combination. And do you agree that politicians are selected primarily for ideology as opposed to competence? And if so, is this a flaw in the model of democracy? Well, Nick, actually, it's interesting. When politicians, especially leaders, are elected, the criteria varies quite a lot. It can be sometimes when a party's lost an election. The subsequent election can be quite contested over ideological positions. The classic one being the Jeremy Corbyn election, where there was a reaction to the rather stay dull technocratic leadership contest being fought in 2015 you know they were all agonizing what to say about whether the Labour government was to be blamed for the financial crash for overspending and in pop Corbyn say the problem was they didn't spend enough and suddenly there was a sort of ideological edge to it which got him elected without other criteria being set as well as a test for leadership Corbyn having spent his entire time on the back benches since 1983. Other times, for example, with Johnson, it was the fact that they thought he could win an election and get Brexit done, that he got in via the threat of Farage. There were no questions posed of any seriousness about his capacity to lead, his capacity to manage people, his capacity to master detail, his integrity. Virtually none of it came up in the leadership contest or indeed in the general election in December. Tony from Solihull writes, i, I I don't know why I put Tony from Solihull, but I just see at the end of the email, it says Solihull. He says, oh, he loves the originality and uniqueness of the podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, uniqueness is uh, always praise that makes you, mm, yeah, right. Okay, yeah, no, it's great. I'm thrilled. Thank you. Oh, he says, I get the impression that you've increased your level of criticism, rightly so, I might add, regarding the incompetence of Johnson and his cabinet. Who would you like to see in the crucial positions, cabinet or otherwise, and why? Yeah, I have done, actually, with reluctance in this sense. I'll tell you, the as someone who's written many columns in my time, political columns, the easiest column to write, and yet the one that is most praise, is just to slag somebody off. Editors think it's brave when actually normally it's always following that media orthodoxy we were talking about earlier. It's, it's safe, popular, and people think you're brave for doing it. So I have, on the whole, tried to avoid it. You know, to go back to the past, I was, as a columnist, very opposed to the war in Iraq long before that became fashionable. Didn't see it as courageous on Tony Blair's behalf. But I never kind of joined in, oh, Blair's a war criminal, perhaps Blair's gone bonkers. None of that kind of added up to me, and it wasn't interesting as a way of analysing what had happened with him and how he had got into this position. So even with Johnson, you try, you know, you kind of think, well, this levelling up agenda, this desire to be Rooseveltian in your use of government is potentially an interesting place to be. And sometimes I've tried to analyse him in that context, but then you realise it's shallow and limited and he half believes that, but then he half believes in 
other things. He doesn't want to raise taxes. So how are you going to find the money for that kind of Rooseveltian agenda? And 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 the scale of incompetence is partly the word, but it's more than that. It's it's based on a set of beliefs and assumptions which are interesting to explore. So yeah, yeah, I have been critical, but I hope not just critical because in the end that's boring. Just say, oh, what a disaster. Oh, he's useless. You know, I mean you can say these things and they kind of have an element of truth to them but that's i mean if everyone's going around saying that or the opposite he's still if you watch these vox pops that the bbc do relentlessly without revealing anything when they go to constituencies in the north of england they are still saying a lot of them oh yeah good old boris he's fighting for the country doing his best with the covid he's getting us out of that awful european union so I mean, that too is as cliched as to say disaster. So hopefully we can go a bit deeper than that with podcasts like this. Gary Rudd says, oh, he's looking forward to streaming at King's Place. So I'll see you virtually on that front, Gary. Is it conceivable that Trump is hanging on whilst negotiating some form of legal immunity? I doubt it. I think the Trump response is fascinating, to be honest. I am surprised at the extent of it. I thought that once he had lost, he would just claim to have won, but then go, because that would have been the best thing for him in terms of his own future position than this humiliating attempt to keep on pretending he's won and refusing to cooperate with Biden in any way at all. I think those who have speculated he will be the Republican candidate at the next presidential election in four years time I've always had doubts about that but I think the manner of his going has been so pathetic and schoolboy like that he won't be that candidate he will stagger out an even more diminished figure including in the eyes of some of those who voted for him in the election in November Uh, what I'm saying in November it's still November he cannot bear losing he cannot bear to be seen to be losing he's probably almost convinced himself that he's been robbed of it. But I don't think that is the main reason. I think he just cannot bear it. And it's interesting, I think if he had lost last time round, four years ago, there would have been a part of him who said, well, I expected this. And he would have probably claimed to have won still, but uh, would have gone more quietly. But he is doing this because he cannot contemplate conceding defeat. I'm sure in business deals he was the same. And so we are seeing him battling it out in a way that I think will kind of condemn him to be more like a Nigel Farage figure in the future, you know, wholly dominant in the media, loving being in the media, but never again seeking to take elected responsibility. But you never know with him. March Irving writes to say... I wonder to what extent you think the current political crisis is due to the political parties making their leadership contest decided solely by their memberships. And he mentions both Johnson and Corbyn uh, rather than MPs. Well, of course, Corbyn, that is true. In fact, most Labour leaders, not Starmer, but Corbyn, Miliband, going back even further to Neil Kinnock, didn't get the support of the majority of their MPs. Uh, yet one with the uh, membership and it it made their leaderships really difficult because the MPs who didn't vote for them never really forgave them for winning especially Corbyn but to some extent with the other two Johnson incidentally did of course win 
he got the support of uh, most MPs as well as the membership for the reasons we've already discussed in this podcast. But I think it is a problem. One of the many reasons why the quality of leadership is not as great as it was, just I think objectively, that doesn't mean other prime ministers, God, if you've read my book, you'll know what I mean. All prime ministers are miserable a lot of the time. But I think when memberships have the vote, it does produce a leader who then has to work with his or her MPs. And I think that creates a real problem if they haven't had the support of those MPs. So you're on to something. But I doubt if that will ever be changed. Uh, you know, the Conservatives now do it as well. And uh, the membership will, will vote. But it is interesting. It tells you a lot about political parties, the mood of a membership. So, for example, when Tony Blair won in 1994, it told you that the membership wanted to win that next election come what may. Tony Blair, if he had been around and standing in the leadership contest, say, in 1983, I don't think would have won four election defeats and they wanted someone who was perceived to be an election winner and Keir Starmer this time four election defeats would he have won in 2010 2015 I'm not so sure so they do to some extent tell us about the mood of a party not that Labour at the moment with some of the things they're up to showing much hunger for election victories Andrew Kitchen, oh, he refers, Andrew refers to an interview I did with Douglas Alexander for the week in Westminster at the weekend, who said, we went back to the origins of what Labour were thinking about when they set up the Scottish Parliament, their thoughts in the 90s, really, given what Boris Johnson had said it, about it being a disaster. And of course, he's right on one level, all those who support devolution cannot be thrilled that it's provided the stage for the rise of independence. And he said the original rationale, this is Douglas Alexander, was social justice. Andrew points out, Andrew Kitchen, that actually what is required, as Malcolm Rifkind had said on a Radio 4 interview, is an urgent reform of the British state, constitutional reform of all sorts, beginning with the House of Lords, should it become a federal chamber, etc. Gordon Brown is very sharp on this, actually, Andrew, as you probably know, in the sense that uh, he argues, this is typical Brown, he always wanted a dividing line, and he says the dividing line in Scotland should be between independence and a reformed UK. The trouble is, of course, people disagree on what form the reform should take. Every time there's an attempt to scrap the House of Lords and put in something else, it never works. So that is, to put it mildly, a long-term project. Independence is very strong now. But there's no doubt the COVID thing, as we've reflected many times on this podcast, has highlighted the fragilities of the English constitution, where power lies, where accountability lies. Uh, you can see it in, for example, the mayor of the Man Manchester, Andy Burnham, having a platform but very limited power. You can see it indeed in London with the Mayor of London more power, but still not that much. And yet in Scotland, there is quite a lot of power, but should there be more? And Douglas Alexander admitted to me in that interview, they gave far too little power to the Scottish Parliament at the beginning. So these are big issues. And 
I think that the UK is going to be reformed at the very least. But to go back to an earlier question, the breakup is still absolutely to the fore at the moment. And as I say, I think the only way it won't happen in Scotland is if the government doesn't grant the referendum. And it probably won't grant it if it looks as if it's going to lose, whatever the consequences. Well, there are so many things around at the moment, aren't there? All of them have a kind of seismic uh, quality to them. So I hope you're going to join me Monday night at 7. Thank you for those brilliant questions. We got through quite a lot of them, but um, keep them coming. And of course, you can ask questions live tomorrow night. We're going to kind of do that thing where it's immediate. But for those of you who want to ask on the podcast, it's steverick14 at icloud.com. I'll put it on the podcast blurb as well. And yeah, King's Place, live show, streamed, the lockdown special, 7pm Monday night. See you then and next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.